Hold on and buckle up. You're about to ride into a place of theological sanity with Appalachian Anglican. Ecclesia Appalachia Missio Mundi. Welcome back to another episode of Appalachian Anglican. I'm Joshua. I'm Adam. And I'm Daryl. And today we're going to be talking about ontology, how grace heals or perfects nature. Yeah, ontology is a study of being, um, which largely is misunderstood. Well, I won't say misunderstood, unknown. It's probably a better way of describing it. And what we are going to do our best not to do, which may sound counterproductive to a discussion on ontology or being, essence, nature, etc., is going back is going back to discuss Spinoza or Hegel or Heidegger or John Locke. I mean, go back Descartes, go back and pick a philosopher from basically the Enlightenment on. And what happens is when you start looking at ontology through a philosophical lens, you get all of these different schools of thought and how they've impacted the world and the culture that we live in. And if you're looking for podcasts like that, there are plenty and have fun. If you're looking for a really good, consistent Christian discussion on those topics, I would recommend the philosopher Peter Kraft. He's a Roman Catholic philosopher up at Boston College. He's been up there since Solzhenitsyn came in and spoke, you know, in the 70s. Uh, Kraft's got a bunch of stuff on Lord of the Rings, too. Like yeah. fan fiction? No, no, like philosophy, like how Lord of the Rings is a, is a, not just a, the, a theological book, but very philosophical. I'm just going to add that to my uh, podcast watches. Yeah. Well, man, they, they got like some of his whole lectures on YouTube that are over an hour where he goes in and talks about the sacramental life that Tolkien puts into the book. I mean, it, it's, it's, it's very good. Um, but that's, his name, his last name is spelled K-R-E-E-F-T. So it looks like Kreeft, but it's Kreeft, Peter Kreeft. So if you're looking for more of a, uh, from a philosophical perspective, discussions on ontology, I would recommend him. He, he even put out a, a Summa of the Summa from Thomas Aquinas, which it, in itself, that book is, I don't know, 800 pages, which is a condensed version of, of Aquinas's Summa Theologia. So there's plenty out there. What we want to do is let's talk about scripture. What does scripture say about nature? What does scripture say about being in essence? And then what does scripture say about grace and the relationship between the two? And that's kind of where we want to, where we want to park this week. Let's go. Where? Running over people and things and stuff. Oh my gosh. Okay. Well, <laughs> thanks, Josh. Into uh, <laughs> good I didn't want to quote the song. <laughs> yeah, let's, uh, <laughs> let me give you a scripture reference. And this is from the wisdom of Solomon which is in the Deuterocanonical books. It's uh, Wisdom of Solomon, chapter 11, verse 24. Well, let me read, let me start in verse 23. And this is from, a, this translation is based upon the Septuagint, okay? Which, I mean, most of your Deuterocanonical translations are coming from the Septuagint anyway. But here we go. But you are merciful to all, for you can do all things. And you overlook the sins of men to bring them to repentance. That's Paul, right? When he's speaking in Athens, you know, God has overlooked, but now he's calling all men everywhere to repent. It's also Romans 1 and 2, mm -hmm. right? Verse 24, 
For you love all the things that exist, and you detest nothing of the things you made. For you would not even make anything you hated. How could anything continue to exist unless you willed it? That is picked up in our Ash Wednesday collect. So Cranmer is echoing this. Well, I say Cranmer, I don't, I'd have to go back and look at who wrote specifically our Ash Wednesday collect. It's, um, I would imagine it's much older than Cranmer, um, than the 1549, because 75% of the collects in our prayer book are from the third and fourth century sacramentaries and, and that kind of thing. So it may be that he just gave us an updated uh, English edition of it. I, I don't know. I have to go check. But in the Ash Wednesday collect is this verse where we pray to the Lord, you hate nothing that you have made. You hate nothing that you've created. And this is what the wisdom of Solomon is saying. Uh, verse 25, how could anything continue to exist unless you willed it? Or how could anything be preserved unless it was called into existence by you? You spare all things because they are yours, O master who love human beings. So we could really camp in a lot of ways in this, these verses. You know, it's only a few verses loaded with doctrine and theology, really summing up the creation accounts of Genesis 1, because after each act of creation, you know, the text tells us that God saw it and he said it was good. And when we get to the very last statement about that, after the Lord's made everything, he says that it's very good. Tov, tov. It's, it's very good. And, and Solomon, I mean, I don't think it's Solomon himself, the writer, is saying that everything that God made is good, and he loves everything that he's made, and he doesn't hate anything that he has made, and things only have their being, ontology, they only exist because he perpetually sustains its existence. So if he willed for it to cease, or if he willed in such a way as to not sustain it, it would die. So let's, let's talk about that for a moment before we get into things mm -hmm. about, well, what about evil? What is that? Because God surely is not the will. He doesn't will to do moral evil, which is a necessary question. But we've, from this statement, so we got to start here and say, well, what is nature? What is being? Because in Genesis 1, God creates the entire cosmos and organizes the entire cosmos, and it's all very, very good, and he doesn't dislike any of it. He doesn't hate any of it. It's very good. I mean, I think right from the bat, even you, like you're talking about, even the perspective of matter, like we can't just say everything's evil. It kind of it mocks completely against the Gnostic perspective from the very get-go. I would also say it conflicts with a lot of really popular ways of, like when I grew up, of people in evangelical places trying to explain the gospel to people. <clears throat> like trying to explain that, like they normally try to explain it like where there's a separation between nature and grace. And when do you, you think those categories even come up in those kinds of conversations? Yes, I do think in a certain capacity, like how not not exactly like word for word, but I'm just saying like I was I was reading about this stuff yesterday, and I was just considering how even in, with my best intentions of trying to share the gospel with people, 
as a young Christian, young evangelical Christian, whatever, that I was making the error and mistake of explaining it the wrong way, even though I didn't have the right information. So I was explaining like grace is separate from nature instead of as a part of it the whole time. Almost as if, almost as if there's like a, a part of them that the Lord wasn't concerned about redeeming. Yes. Yes. So like almost like uh, escapism. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Like, uh, like I'll fly away. Like, like, I mean, we sing that. How yeah. many times we sing that? And that's a, the anthem of escapism. Yeah. The, the relationship between grace and nature is really important. And we'll come to that. We'll, we'll get to that in a more significant way. Like even this definition of what is grace? What is it? And most people do not answer that question from a biblical perspective. They answer it in the sense to say, well, grace is permission and or grace is license, which it is not. It is not at all. That is not what it is. Because somebody, somebody will say, well, just give me some grace, man. Give me some grace or, or have grace for this scenario or this situation. And they don't mean the word in a biblical sense. And we'll come to that in a moment. But let's go back to, to nature and creation. And we've we got a we got a camp here, okay? So continuing along with the wisdom of Solomon. And again, for our listeners who are not familiar with or are accustomed to using the Deuterocanonical books for instructive purposes, in the 39 articles, the articles do make a distinction between the 66 books and then these other books, but then plainly says that these books are useful, right? So we don't use them to build doctrine and the articles by that what they're saying is you can't take these books and justify the indulgence system that was prevalent in western christianity that that's what they're getting at that uh, you know they're required reading for baptism in the in the early church right so we're not uh we're not creating new doctrines or innovating theologies in all of the medieval er- erroneous ways that's not what we're doing so Having said that, here's all the beneficial stuff that's in here. So let's keep looking at this. In Wisdom of Solomon 12, the writer says, For your immortal spirit is in all things. He's still praying. Your immortal spirit is in all things. For this reason, you correct little by little those who fall away. And you remind and warn them of the sins they commit so they may be freed from evil and believe in you, O Lord. Again, you can hear Paul's ministry amongst the Gentiles here, right? Now, we've just looked at this and how God doesn't hate anything that he has made, right? Remember that? Correct. Okay. All right. Well, now we're at verse, chapter 12, verse 3. What is the very next thing he says? You hated the inhabitants of your holy land long ago. Now, he's not contradicting himself. This is going to take us into that necessary question of what about evil? Mm-hmm. And what is God's response to evil? Because we've been living in a day for decades, I won't say 100 years yet, maybe, maybe 70 or 80, where the grace or the mercy or the consideration, if you will, is given to the lawbreaker. You know, the, we, we have more pity on the thief and on the aggressive person who beats somebody, then we do on the person who was robbed or the person who was beaten. On the wolf as opposed to the sheep? Yes. So, and, and, we're, and that's a skewed perspective of mercy. And that's not a godly perspective of mercy. The person who does the evil and in so doing the evil hurts someone is not the one who deserves the pity 
but the person wounded is the one who deserves the pity. And the pity helps and restores them. The pity on the evil person is that you move him to repentance, and you don't do that by softening what he needs to address to be corrected and restored, disciplined. Right? He says, for, for you hated the inhabitants of your holy land long ago. Let me pause again to say this. In the flood narrative, what does God do to the whole world except for the people in the ark? Kills them. Yes. Destroys them. Right. Who's the one who destroys the people in the account of Noah's flood? God is. Mm-hmm. It, directly. Like, I don't know, yes. know if you're no, going for a yeah. trick question. Yeah, no, 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 that's no, no. the thing. Like, it's like, it's, I'm a, reading it's, the text. A, it's a uh, direct act from God through nature. Right? The floodwaters. Okay? Now, Sodom and Gomorrah. Who destroys Sodom and Gomorrah? The Lord does. The Lord does, but what is the agency through which he does it? Yeah, it's fire and brimstone, but there's, a, there's something even more significant in, in the account. The two people visit? The angels. Because okay. the angels say, we can't rain down fire until you're out of here. Right? So the divine will works through the mediation of the angels. When Joshua goes into the promised land, how does God judge the people? Through destruction? Through the sword of Joshua. And people get up, they're like, wow, this is, it's not the same God. It's not the same. The God of the Old Testament is not Jesus. No, they're very much the same. They're very much the same. Because Christ is prophesying the destruction of the temple, which he will do through the agency of the Roman army. Okay? So this is important because the scripture says that God is angry with the wicked every day. And so we have to take these two statements about how there's nothing that he hates that he made, but then he hates the wicked. And those things are not contradictory, they're complementary. And if we, address, if we live into either one of those in an improper way, we will bless the wicked mm-hmm. and we will curse the righteous. And we'll do it because of our misunderstanding of nature, of existence, of being itself. Okay? Because... One of the things that's happening through the teaching, the narratives of the Old Testament, and Paul goes into this extensively in Romans, is that the acts, the, the deeds that we do, are the fruits of our being. This is a very, very rabbinic, very Jewish idea. I mean, the Lord does this in the Sermon on the Mount. A good tree bears good fruit. A bad tree bears bad fruit. And bad trees are only good to be cut down and thrown into the fire. But he's merciful, so he'll give it three more years in that particular parable and, you know, clean it up, put fresh manure around it, everything he can to make it abundant. And if it's not, then he removes it. The vine that doesn't produce, or the branch that doesn't produce fruit, he prunes. This is all a very biblical perspective. And we have to have a good understanding of God's mercy, of his love, and of his divine hatred. So in verse 4, what we have here is why God hates the inhabitants of the Holy Land. Now, do you notice the, well, I don't have time to go into more parallel, parallelism in the Old Testament, but verse 4, because they practiced very hateful works. So they're doing wicked things. They're doing hateful things, specifically sorcery and unholy rites. So their liturgy is perverse. Their form of worship is towards uh, idols. And then involves acts of violence, sorcery, and witchcraft. Mm. These unmerciful murderers of children. 
who ate sacrificial meals of human flesh and blood. These initiates in the midst of an orgy, these parents and murderers of helpless children, you willed to destroy by the hands of our fathers, that the land most precious of all to you might be a worthy colony of the servants of God. Again, you can hear Paul in Romans chapter 1. He's saying the same things. And you can even hear the words when the Lord is telling Abraham what will happen to his descendants. Yeah. And the idea is their iniquities have to build up here before I can... That is, that is pretty much the things that they're doing now. Okay, give it some time. Yeah. I got, there, there's an element of, of mercy in that right. that is right. astounding. Well, notice... Okay, so now let's go into verse 8. Okay. And again, keep this thought in mind here about nature, what, uh, what nature is and its works. Being. Verse 8. But even these you spared since they were men. You sent wasps as forerunners of your army that you might destroy them little by little. And so when you read verse 8 in relationship to the, the verses at the end of chapter 11, what he's saying is this was incremental judgment in the attempts to bring them to repentance, but they didn't listen because they were wicked, and because they were wicked like that, you hated them. So it's reinforcing the point and displaying both God's kindness and his severity. Verse 9, For you were not powerless to give the ungodly to the righteous in regular battle, or to destroy them by terrible wild beasts, or by one severe word, but judging them little by little, you gave them a chance for repentance. Again, that's Peter. God is not slow in his promise, but it's his kindness, it's his patience that brings you to repentance. For you were not unaware that their generation was evil, their vice implanted. See, there's another uh, um, uh, nature allegory, another reference, implanting a seed and the fruit that that seed bears as it grows. And their reasoning would not change forever, for they were an accursed seed from the beginning. For you did not give them amnesty for their sins because you feared anyone. So he's not withdrawing his judgments and, you know, God is displaying who he is. Okay. Now we're not going to do a, a, a whole big discussion here on Solomon, but the wisdom of Solomon, but go to 1219 and let's bring it back around a little bit. He says, through such works, you taught your people that the righteous man should love mankind. And see, when a righteous man loves mankind, he resists evil. He opposes it. He doesn't give it a blanket. He doesn't give it comfort. He doesn't give it an excuse. He doesn't give it license. He doesn't permit the evil in his own heart. And he doesn't support the evil that's external to him. He opposes it. For through such works you taught your people that the righteous man should love mankind. And you made your children hopeful by offering them repentance over their sins. For if you punished the enemies of your children and those liable to death with so much attention and deliberation and granted them time and opportunity to depart from their evil, with how much strictness did you judge your children to whose fathers you gave oaths and covenants of good promises? So then, you chastened us, but our enemies with 10,000 whips, that they might care about your goodness when we judge, but expect your mercy when we are judged. 
So what he's saying is, you were very attentive, very deliberate in how you dealt with the wicked. And you were teaching us that we should love righteousness. And if you were that patient with the wicked, how much greater confidence then do we have as your people? Because he hates nothing that he's made. And he wills the good of everything that he's made. And it's when the things that he has made, whom the things he's given a will to, choose the evil or to do evil, he is gracious in the sense that he does not judge them immediately, but he's giving them opportunities to repent. That speaks to nature and then how nature becomes disordered. And nature becomes disordered not through the second law of thermodynamics, which says that everything tends towards destruction or decay or death, uh, entropy, if you will, to, you know, in another, another one of those natural laws and things, uh, physics, etc. He's not, it's not that. What's happening is here is that there's the will does that which is evil. Because within the being is this seed of wickedness and corruption. And so nature is made good. And then when Adam sins, he becomes a sinner. And that's the implantation of that wicked seed so that nature becomes corrupted as far as humanity goes. And then the physical world, you know, mother nature, if you will, the physical world, the cosmos, becomes subject to decay because of the sin in humanity. And that is a metaphysical, spiritual reality that goes beyond a singular individual or even a family unit and pervades the entirety of the cosmos. Because Eve sinned, she's going to have increased pain in childbearing. Because Adam sinned, he will have to work by the sweat of his brow to get fruit and food. It won't just naturally yield itself. He's going to have to labor to do it. And the judgment upon both of them is they're going to go back to dust. They're going to die. Meaning, while we receive the fullness of grace from Christ in the church through the sacraments and the infilling of the Spirit, etc., we are still subject to death because Christ hasn't returned yet. Now, he can act in a sovereign way and just take certain people to heaven, Enoch, Elijah, Moses after he died. Uh, we could get into church history and talk about the Blessed Virgin again. But point being, it's appointed once to man to die and then to face the judgment. And so nature is made good, and part of it being made good is it being given the will to choose what is evil and what is good. And we become more thoroughly the effects of what we choose consistently. And that's what's happening in this interplay here and the development of nature. And the wisdom of Solomon is pulling all of this out from essentially Genesis through the, the era of the conquest of Canaan and, and on out further. So it's, it's definitely something for us to, to take a moment and say, okay, let me, let me think about this. And if you want more, more details from Solomon, just keep reading through chapter 12 and 13, and he gets into even more specifics. But these are the principles that we want to start with in our discussion about nature and grace. Well, the point that I think is pretty interesting within this particular passage that you, we've been going over in the Wisdom of Solomon is um, the fact that, said the land, it was talking about how the land was corrupted. Yeah. Because of what they were doing. So right. as much as the, their evil deeds are coming up as sinful because they're sinful, the fact that the Lord wants to purify the land itself. 
Yeah, because that and that's the metaphysical, that's the spiritual connection between human behavior and the cosmos. They're bound together. I mean, I'm just saying that idea by itself is pretty sobering when we think about. Well, this goes into what you were saying earlier about how you share the gospel, right? So that the idea is to get souls, so invisible spiritual beings, to get them into a spiritual invisible heaven. That's what it is to be saved. That's Gnosticism. That's a kind of Gnosticism. The gospel is thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so the consecration of the Holy Land under the old covenant is not negated in some abstract disembodied way in the new. The new covenant is that the whole earth is now the Lord's. The whole earth is the Lord's and the meek shall inherit the earth. And so the promise that's given to Abraham about having land is not abolished in the sense that it's muted and, and fulfilled in a, in a ghostly way. No, it's fulfilled in a very tangible and real way because of the increase of his government, the Lord Jesus, there shall be no end. And the coastlands are his inheritance. The islands fear him. The nations come from afar and bow down and worship him. That's epiphany. That's what's happening with the, the Magi when they come. So the, the expansion of the promise is the New Testament, and the whole earth is his. And he takes dominion over the whole of the earth, not just the piece of land, which is, how, which is the interpretive principle to go back and read the Old Testament and now see all of these very specific things for the nation of Israel. They're fulfilled by Jesus, and then in his fulfillment, he gives them to the church. And it's through the church that his saving ag- uh, agency is at work to redeem people and dirt stuff. This is where sacraments, the sacramentals are important. Blessed chalk for epiphany, blessed salt, oil, water, all of these very natural things. Uh, a priest's vestments are, are blessed. They participate sacramentally in the grace that they represent and typify. And for some people, that's a difficult concept. But I mean, try burning an American flag. And the people who would be irate about that probably don't have any concept about sacramental participation, but they know that that flag represents the United States and just in a representative way, not even in a, in a metaphysical way or a true spiritual way, a true sacramental way. Grace heals nature. So this is, we have to think about nature, how nature has become corrupted through its own choices, because that's an act of love. You know. If God created and in, the, in his act of creation required that he be loved by what he created, it's not love, but something else. That's why this AI dating stuff and these robots and you know, all this kind of stuff that's going on, the guys are really being drawn into because they don't have the courage to talk to girls and, and all kinds of other stuff. We could get into that. Um, it's not love. It's a kind of narcissism. It's, it's, a, it's, it's a whole other level of depravity. Nature. Nature, nature, nature. Being, existence, ontology. I think the, the biggest question that I have when we're talking about like ontology and nature and grace is what are the things that are inherently natural and what are the things that are not? So like, especially when we're having, like, what is normative? Like, what is baseline? Because in, in parts of this, it's, it's talking about how, the, like, you know, the Lord doesn't hate anything that he has made. But, but then but he what, hates them when they do wicked. That, that he hates yeah. them when they do wicked. So what does wicked, like, what is the result of wickedness? And then what is 
just the nature of humanity. Yeah. So let's, let's go to Romans one then. Okay. So we could pull this out of Solomon, but I know for some people, this has been a stretch for them to think about wisdom of Solomon is good for them. So let's just go to Romans one and, and, and hear what St. Paul says. So Romans one eighteen, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. So suppressing the truth is an act of wickedness and God hates it. Anything that you need to say, not like you've got a, a compulsion to say it and not because there's, you know, some sense of narcissism, but any truthful thing that needs to be said that is not said is a lie. You are participating in a lie when you do not tell the truth, when that truth is necessary. For example, you do not explain how your children could potentially you know, what kind of death they would suffer if they walked out in front of a car when they're four years old. You just say, stay out of the street. That's enough truth, right? If you start going into how, you know, their guts will be crushed out and they'll look like dead animals and they're just, it's, it's, you know, pretty, pretty vile stuff, right? But as they get bigger, you explain to them, here's what happens when you do that. You run out to the street because they, they have the capacity to handle more truth, right? So this is part of that principle. Um, when there was this news headline I saw, I think it was yesterday, something about, oh man, I don't know if I, if I can get this right, but it was like a, there was a woman who was in the process of taking hormone injections and surgeries to become a man. And when they went to complete the rest of the physical surgeries, discovered that the woman who was becoming a man was pregnant. And so the article was something to the effect of trans man found to be with baby during whatever the surgery was called. Okay, well, that's a lie, right? The truth is pregnant woman found during, a woman found to be pregnant during surgery. That's the truth. You see, all the other stuff is a lie. And so when you agree with these uh ungodly definitions that becomes something that the lord hates and in agreement with that not only are you suppressing the truth because you're supporting the lie you are suppressing the truth and in that act of suppression is unrighteousness in the sight of god and to the extent that people go along to get along with those kinds of statements then you are engaging in the falsehood and so when we talk about nature, we're not talking about differences of opinion about um, scientific theories, you know, what is gravity like or how do black holes work. We're not talking about a different kind of logical arrangement about the way the natural world operates, because all of that's part of nature. It's part of discovery. We're talking about things that have been set and established since the creation that would be manipulated and distorted and altered in such a way to promote something that's contrary to what God has revealed, right? So that's the first. So verse 19, because Paul says in verse 18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. He doesn't say it will be. He says it is. It's already present. Jesus says that, or it's, the Lord doesn't say it, but it's in John 3, that the person who doesn't believe 
in the Son already abides under the wrath of God. John 3, 18 through 21. So here in verse 19 of Romans 1, Paul says, Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because, although they know God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man, and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up to the uncleanness, to uncleanness, in the lust of their hearts, to dishonor their bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for the lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who was blessed forever. Amen. Verse 26. For this reason God gave them up to vile passions, for even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust for one another men with men committing what is shameful, and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error which was due. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind, to do those things which are not fitting, being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness, they are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. Meaning, there are people who don't engage in that behavior, but they will approve of it. And there's multiple ways that you can actually approve of that kind of stuff. And Paul's saying all of its wickedness. He's summarizing a large chunks of material from the wisdom of Solomon, as we've already referred to. And he's clearly going back to the law of Moses and what has happened through Israel's history. And what's happening here in the latter portion of Romans 1 is he's talking about the corruption of nature. Because nature is its own witness of God's might, glory, power, majesty, and eternity. And in nature is revealed, God's will is revealed in it. And they violate that. They won't listen to it. They do what's contrary to it. And professing to be wise, they become fools. And so this is always the case. So I, I will be logically consistent in my behavior. I will create a logical schema to say, I can do this behavior because it's okay. It doesn't really matter because we evolved from fish. So, an, so an, uh, an entirely new origin story is created by the culture so that in that origin story, in that mythos, these things that I want to do are now permissible. And so you get a clash of worldviews, one that's biblical, one that's not. This is and this can be, you know, we can extrapolate this out to even more principles of appropriation and, and parallel them. Um, I don't think we can do that now because we want to get into grace. But 
a new origin story is created. And in that origin story, we now have a redefined morality and behavior practices. Liturgies change, not just the, the removal of them, but we change them. And so, th- and this gives us essentially what we're dealing with today in, in secular humanism. In the ancient world, it was the worship of Baal and fertility cults and this kind of stuff, which that's, I mean, that's kind of on the rise too, because secular humanism is a vacuum for, for spirituality. And that vacuum is filled by demons of another kind. Because that's the other thing Paul says, is that the root source for these various ideologies is not just fallen nature, but fallen nature as it's animated and supported and energized by the diabolic powers that rebelled against God in the primordial past. That's the answer to the question about what are the specific things that are against nature. Paul gives a list. But you see how in the modern secular humanist mind, or even in the modern Christian mind who hasn't really begun to understand that they are still adhering to too much um, evolutionary theory in the wrong ways, with that new origin story, that new mythos, they can do behaviors that Paul says are sinful, but they say they're not sinful because we know better now. No, we don't. The, The creation story in Scripture is the creation of the world. It's how it happened. Now, it doesn't describe everything that happened, right? I mean, that, we're not talking about those layers, but we see in the natural world, God set within it the parameters of what should be. Specifically in Genesis 1, he creates things according to their kind and commands them the, to reproduce according to their kind. And to ensure that they can re- reproduce according to their kind, he makes male and female. And then that entire base level in nature, he raises up in creative distinction until he gets to man and woman. And then when you come in so that they are of their own kind, and then they reproduce after their own kind, and they can only reproduce male and female, and the first command given to them is to reproduce and to take dominion. So anything that violates that is already working against nature. You bring that into contemporary idiom, you bring that into the modern philosophical understandings, the different origin stories, it doesn't make sense. Because they're living under a different, a different spirit, if you will. When like looking at healing nature, um, especially this Romans 1 passage, I've heard it explained a lot that it is essentially the fruition of total depravity. And, yeah, that, and like yeah. the idea of handing them over to that. How do we um, still separate that nature? Because there's clearly a responsibility here. Because Paul talks about you ought to know better, but you ignore the things that the Lord has put in you inherently, and you go and do these lists, which are pretty. It'll it'll read it in church. It'll make you blush. Yeah, I mean, at, at this, how how do yeah. we like how do we separate the idea of there's a nature that the the Lord is wanting to enliven or I guess maybe resurrect with grace with the idea of like total depravity and sin. Yeah, the nature is in its own particular kind of sinful bondage. It, it's in its own kind of darkness. It's uh, under the sway of the prince of the power of the air. That's the, another Pauline emphasis is that the, uh, Orrin John says that the, the whole world is asleep in the lap of the devil, right? Referring to Samson and Delilah kind of, and, and, you know, recalling that. Uh, the prevenient grace, essentially. So in John 1, it says that the light, you know, Christ came into the world and the light has shone on all men. Mm-hmm. And 
pretty universally commentators are agreed that the light is a reference to conscience. And conscience is that gift of God that he gives to all people that is enough for them to, to recognize this may not be right. It's not enough to give them the content of the gospel, but it's enough to awaken the conscience to say that I shouldn't do this, which is why you can find in every culture on the planet people who are in, engaged in gross immorality and people who are not. People who are, for all moral purposes, morally oriented purposes, righteous people. They're obeying the light of their conscience, okay? They're moving closer and receiving all the, the grace they can that God is giving to them through the natural law in anticipation of the gospel in a full way. That, that's kind of the way to look at that. That is not the general default. Because part of nature, even nature that has fallen, is the desire to protect and preserve itself and so you can develop on that basis very strong philosophical argumentation for why you should be a disciplined person and in your disciplined activities, preserve and protect your life, but still be bound in sin and unbelief. And what we have in the church, a large portions of the, of the American evangelical church, is a failure to recognize that discipline is godly and the principal way that grace starts to work in us is the creation of conflict in the soul, the creation of uneasiness that says, you know what? I shouldn't eat like this. I shouldn't think like this. I shouldn't watch this. I shouldn't speak this way. I need to take better care of my natural life because I've only got one. And God will judge me on the basis of how I handle my natural life in many ways. Do I, do I take unnecessary risks? I mean, th there's all kinds of stuff to get into here. Yeah. And, and depending upon what the particular kind of sin or deformed action is that we engage in, there are particular kinds of consequences because of it. Sorcery, Solomon mentioned mm -hmm. that. Uh, wicked rites, you know, false religious worship. Uh, Paul goes at length to talk about, you know, the sexual relationship between male and female. That creates an entirely different kind of metaphysical spiritual bond when two become one flesh, not because they got married, but because they were sexually intimate. How, you don't undo that just by saying, hey, I don't want that to be the case anymore. There's a whole um, spillover in the natural world that has profound, significant impacts in many ways. And so yeah. if we can get that settled, then we can really talk about grace and what is grace and what does grace do? And, and that reminds me of a, it's an, a, a, an apologetic argument. Um, I can't remember the, the who or the, the proper name of it, but the, the gist of the idea is um, when kind of talking to someone, they said, well, think of a perfect world. Well, in a perfect world, do, do people lie to take advantage of others? Do people kill each other? Do people cheat on their spouse? You know, like you, and nobody would say, wow, in the objectively perfect world, would these things happen? And that's an imprinting of that conscious word is that where does that come from the fact that we can have a room full of people from different you know cultures or perspectives and we would all say that there are universal things that if they are in place or if these things aren't happening the world is a better place right well let's let's move now into grace and reflect on this more specifically because how does grace come to us um and what is it so one of the principal definitions of grace, and I think this is very much emphasized by Paul and through the whole of, of our Christian theology, 
is that grace is transformative power. Grace is not license. Grace is effectual, meaning it accomplishes what it is. And so when grace heals nature, this is the transformative power, the restorative power of God that makes nature what it's supposed to be by undoing the effects of sin. The ultimate expression of that being bodily resurrection and the creation of a new heavens and a new earth. When we perceive that that is what grace is, now we understand why grace stays the hand of God's judgment. How grace is a gift that keeps us from being destroyed. Because what grace is doing is not just staying the hand of God's judgment by claiming a kind of righteousness that doesn't transform us. It is staying the hand because it's claiming righteousness that is transforming us. And that righteousness is Christ's. And the righteousness of Christ that comes to us by grace comes because of faith. And so grace quickens faith. It gives the will the ability to believe so that you might believe through the uh, conflict so that each conflict and the endurance in that conflict creates the character of God within us. So grace is that transformative power that when it is at work, makes us more innately, naturally, what we were supposed to be by nature anyway. So it's restoring all of that. And so this is where grace is bound to ontology. It's bound to being itself. And we could come into Romans 4, and you start to see how Paul shifts the discussion about how the grace of God comes to Abraham, and the grace of God is at work in Abraham by giving Abraham faith for things that are impossible in the natural world. So in this case, it's not Abraham's being given faith to overcome some kind of, you know, wicked vice, as we typically think about it, as like when Paul writes to the Corinthians, but he's giving Abraham faith for a promise that Abraham can't make happen himself. And he gives him faith to, that he strengthens through testing that faith so that the grace can be that much more efficacious and display just how much of this is God's divine work and not the work of nature, because nature now is principally fallen as far as humanity is concerned. And he builds that all the way through chapter five. And then, you know, eventually comes to where he says that anything that's not done from faith is sin. Now, in that case, he's talking about, you know, eating food that, you know, your brother may find offensive. But the point is that as grace is at work in us, it builds a life of faith, which is not just expectancy, that's part of it, but faithfulness, meaning we, we believe God more strongly, more fully, more completely, even though we may still have particular challenges because the one who gave the promise is the same one who gives the fulfillment of the promise. That's, that's the principal foundation and backdrop for the relationship with grace and faith. And the effect of grace in us is a transformation, moral transformation, and then at times, various healings, like healing to the physical body. And all of that, those gifts of healing and, and exorcism, for that matter, those particular gifts are, are a sacramental sign recalling the ministry of Jesus when he healed the sick and anticipating the resurrection of the body. Ultimately, unless you get, you know, the Elijah or Enoch experience, the body goes back to being dust. But before that happens, God, obviously, through Christian history, heals certain people 
as signs and wonders indicating the veracity of grace being at work in nature. He doesn't do it for everybody because, again, at some point, everybody goes back to the dust and we wait for the resurrection. So grace heals nature. It perfects it. It restores it. It doesn't contradict it because grace doesn't come to fish and turn them into, you know, monkeys. It doesn't take the male and make it female. It doesn't take the child and age it Im- improperly. It doesn't, it, grace doesn't do that. Grace perfects and heals nature as nature is, is intended and supposed to be in every way that we can conceive of that. And that in the Greek theology is theosis. Because that is only possible because we are experiencing a participation where the divinization of our nature, not by our innate nature, but by the nature of Christ that's communicated to us by faith through the sacraments. There's a, a significant interplay there of how God restores and heals, and the whole methodology behind it is significant. So those are huge emphases that we've got to keep in mind. Otherwise, we end up thinking every good intention is an act of grace that's going to reset and make us better. And that's not the case. And I think part of the difficulty in, I think, this conversation or just walking through it is that there's so much disagreement on, I don't want to say what is being reset, because I think grace is bigger than that. We see, you know, the Lord making things alive um, and something like even more than regenerative happening when when we experience grace. But it's like, what are we being not reset back to, but what is actually being made alive? What is being brought back to nature? And it's still that question of what is nature? What are those good things that were established at the beginning that the Lord is bringing grace to? And then what is sin? What, what, like, what is going on in those situations? What are those particulars? Well, Paul gets into this here in Galatians when he gives the works of the flesh. He says the works of the flesh, which would be fallen nature, unhealed nature, the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like, of which I told you beforehand, and I tell you now, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So even someone, even if someone's making a profession of faith, but they are actively engaging in these behaviors, they are either they're not in the kingdom, or they're they've come into the kingdom in such a way that the grace has yet to move them away from it. And Paul's warning is if you continue in this, you're not going to inherit the kingdom ultimately, no matter what you say. Because again, a good tree bears good fruit, bad tree, bad fruit. He says the fruit of the Spirit, and so when we talk about the Holy Spirit, third person of the Trinity, He is the one brooding over the waters of creation that organizes and orders creation according to the word that is spoken by the Father, thus healing, creating nature. And now the Spirit, in the same way that He was the, the, the principal one at work causing the Word's will to be in effect is now the one on behalf of the Word incarnate at work in the church, ordering and illuminating the people of the church. So 
when the Spirit is at work, grace is manifest. Grace is at work. And so Paul says the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. And those who are Christ's have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another, because that's the flesh. That's unhealed nature. How do we know it's grace that's at work? Because he's working in us the character of Jesus, and not just Jesus through a couple snippets of the Gospels, but Jesus, Genesis to Revelation. So that we can, to refer back to the opening, Solomon, he hates nothing that he's made, but he hates the wicked. And because he hates the wicked, he gives them incremental grace so that they can repent. But the grace that he gives is not the kind of grace that takes away their will, but quickens the will through the conscience, through the preaching of the word, through baptism, to call them to full conversion. But he doesn't take the choice away from them. That can get us into all kinds of conversations about predestination and and human freedom and everything. But and while that has its place, that stuff can get so um, so academic that it ceases to be practically functional. When we stick with grace quickening the will, we can affirm both God's sovereignty and human choice because they're not at odds with each other. Because the angels don't have this choice. He doesn't give them grace. He does give it to people. Yeah, and I, I think you bring up a really good point of this idea. Sometimes it's easy to get so, uh, like you said, academic, theoretical. And when I say theoretical, I don't mean like there, there's no way to prove. Well, in many ways, there's no way to like prove it. Like we will not know in this lifetime who is right in some of these debates. My God, there's no way for us to know. We're being very theoretical. But when you begin to see the effects of grace on, let's say, a marriage, on, uh, you know, on, on a man and a woman, on their family, you begin to see grace in play. That is not theoretical. You can see the effects of it and that grace making alive those things that may not have been there. Yeah, because he makes the man more like Christ and he makes the woman more like the church. That is what is supposed to be represented there. And that goes back to Genesis, comes to the Old Testament, the wedding of Cana, Galilee, Ephesians 5. That's the, what's happening with grace there. But think about all of the Old Testament accounts about the, woman, the women who could not have children. And nature is that women are able to give birth. And so we get all of these accounts where they can't. And that's speaking to, even when it's a div- like the Lord closes the womb, even when it's a divine act from, from the Lord, there is a, a significant focus there that nature is fallen. It's not able to do what it was created to do because of sin. And so the grace of God comes and he heals and he restores that. Uh, and in the cases where he doesn't do that, you know, adoption and all kinds of other things become very, very good, good things that the Lord gives us because those are graces in a different way but speaking to the same fallenness of nature that for whatever reason on this side of the resurrection, he's chosen not to heal for some and for others that he does. Mm-hmm. So this is, that's one example. He's not going to cause women to give birth to parakeets yeah. or to something else, whatever. That's not nature. Kind produces after its own kind. Or like, I, I think of like the story of like Sarah and Abraham and the fact that she has a, a, a baby so late in life. It is so clearly 
an act of the Lord because it is not nat like that is yeah, it's not natural. It's it's just not natural. Right. Right. So there's the act of grace going above and beyond what's natural what is nature to prove that nature in and of itself cannot redeem itself. We're at a spot where we've got to reteach people that nature is good. Even though it's fallen, it's good. God doesn't hate it, but it's incomplete without his grace. And as long as we keep talking about redemption and salvation in a Christian faith in such a way that we are ignoring nature, I mean, this gets into the whole women's ordination debate. I mean, I know that's a hot thing right now because of mere Anglicanism uh, with what happened with our, our buddy, um, Father Calvin, which I think that's kind of surprising anyway, because, you know, when he says, and he's not, this wasn't the first time that he said it, and anybody who listens to, to our podcast or to um, mm -hmm. the Forward and Faith podcast or anybody in the Anglican world from a traditional perspective, meaning 50 years, for more than 50 years ago, that a woman can no more be a priest than a man can have a baby, that's not an offensive question or an offensive statement in any way whatsoever. It's a statement of natural law as natural law is being healed by grace because priesthood is intrinsically bound to headship and headship is rooted in masculinity that is from the very beginning. It's all through scripture and it's all through Christian history. And so when grace heals that and calls the man to represent Christ liturgically in the, in the church through ordination, it's the same thing in marriage. The woman doesn't represent Jesus. She represents the church. The iconic symbol, the sacramental grace is given for her to be more like the church. So all of this stuff spills over far beyond, I need to be morally better. But it definitively addresses proper moral behavior, proper physical, natural conduct. And then it clearly goes into our liturgical life. Exactly. And I, I think, I mean, not to, to bring up the the entire situation from your Anglicanism or whatever. Father Robinson did bring up this perspective that I thought was really interesting. And he was talking about how we want to focus on this idea of race. And race does not impact like in this idea of like ontology. Like right. they're not you are not redeemed differently because of your race. Correct. Like obviously we might have some cultural things. I'm not even about to say that 200 years ago that how someone um, may have interacted with the church was the same if depending on your race. Not what I'm saying, but essentially we you're, you're saved the same way. You're, it does not impact the way that you relate to Christ naturally or based on ontology and who you are. However, your gender does. Not that the Lord redeems you differently, but your relationship to the family to life is different. Based well, on your gender, and that is how God intended yeah. it. Race, as it's understood today, is something that doesn't even become part of human discourse until just a couple hundred years ago, mm -hmm. a few hundred years ago. It, ethnic groups existed, yeah. I mean, identifying yourself through clan and tribe and that kind of stuff, sure. But the way in which that has been explained through naturalism and enlightenment ideology, which is which becomes connected to Darwinian thought. I mean, Darwin and the guys with him were saying that it's possible that the Aborigines weren't, weren't fully human. They were some kind of intermediate species between some, some kind of, you know, other animal and man. This is how bad the recreation of a different myth of a different creation story can radically affect how we interact with our neighbor, with our fellow human being who was made equally in the image of God. So 
these contemporary constructs of race, how that stuff then becomes crystallized in the culture because of the rejection of the creation story in scripture, or how in some cases, and this happened in the South, they reread portions of the creation story in such a way as to promote the superiority of one, quote, race over mm-hmm. another race. That is wrong, but on the other side. Yes, because, exactly. Because you're reading the scripture through that lens instead of, as it's always been understood by the church and, and interpreted, you know, clearly by our Lord and through Paul. So, no, no, I think that that's interesting, but I think it also is important like to the discussion because we can't mislabel nature and mislabel grace and say that it's working in a way that it's not. Right. Uh, by so, um, Sometimes you misidentify what grace looks like in the situation. Sometimes you misidentify what nature looks like. And then sometimes you just misidentify both and you're just wrong all the way around. That's why you can't do it individually. No, you can't. It, it, it's that's foolish. Correct. And these, these are the constant conversations I keep having with, with people. You cannot interpret and you ought not to interpret individually. It doesn't work. And you have to do this within the community of the church. And you want to make sure that the church you're a part of is in is in sync, in step with the historic teaching of the faith. Otherwise, you run into all kinds of other challenges and problems that skew the relationship between nature and grace. And, and we want to emphasize that this week. So hopefully, discussing ontology from this biblical perspective and the relationship to nature and grace, I mean, to kind of connect it to the topic we just did uh, last week on the Incarnation, the incarnate word is man, a man, fully perfected in every way, the Lord Jesus, so that there's no default in him. And the way that his perfection increases is through suffering and how he has to choose obedience through his own will because of the suffering that's happening because of the promise of God, even though he's the word incarnate. And for us to think, that that process of sanctification of theosis is any different than his is to radically misunderstand what grace is because grace gives a promise. Grace empowers you to believe for that promise. And then grace tests you to see how strong the faith is in you for the promise to be fulfilled and grace will fulfill the promise. So there's a whole dynamic of interaction here and when we, when we try to make the grace of God license for sin, permission for iniquity, or the alteration of nature is to misunderstand it, and then to mis, uh, it's a misattribution that we, we identify something as the act of God when it's not, and we prove to be false witnesses of him. And that is a very dangerous place to be. It's very true. And that's kind of what, that's part of what was popping up when Paul is talking about like the acts of the flesh or the works of the yeah. flesh. And how we cannot create this equality between nature and the flesh. They are not the same. We really are dealing with two different ideas. This is one of those topics where hopefully we're not completely breaking in on something new. Hopefully you at least had a baseline of what we we're talking about, especially with ontology. I know we've talked about that before. But if you have any questions or clarifications, feel free to reach out to us. And the best way to do that is through email. And that's at Daryl at Ascension WV. Uh, Daryl is spelled D-A-R-R-Y-L. Also, it would be awesome if you guys or and gals, whoever's out there listening, <laughs> if you, I don't want to be, ex, you know, exclusive here. Yeah, don't be exclusive. Exactly. People outside of Appalachia. Um, 
Yeah, yeah, they don't. Yeah, they, right. they, they might get upset a little bit, but it would be very helpful if you would share, you would like, even leaving comments in our show notes. All of that is activity that boosts us up and gets us out to more people. And it's a really easy, simple thing that maybe takes a few seconds. Once again, thank you for listening. I'm Adam. And I'm Daryl.